Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. I'm Ian Stasikevich, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. In this episode, I'll be speaking with cinematographer Rob McLaughlin about his work on the HBO fantasy series Game of Thrones. This is a special podcast in that you can listen to it all by itself or as a commentary track for the Game of Thrones Season 3 episode, The Reigns of Castamere, which fans of the series will remember features the infamous Red Wedding. So, beware of some spoilers. Because the podcast is timed to the show, there might be a few brief moments of silence between comments. If you're going to sync up the episode, cue up the HBO logo and start the podcast now. My name is Robert McLaughlin, and I was the cinematographer on HBO's series Game of Thrones, episodes 9 and 10 of season 3, the Red Wedding episode and the finale Danny. So, Rob, you're not the only cinematographer on this show. There are actually six or seven of you. I think there were six. I think there were six of us um, on season three. Two, two DPs each did one episode each, and, um, and then four of us did two each. And um, generally, we were all teamed with, with one director that we did our two episodes with. Um, you know, that can change other seasons. Some guys have done four and so forth. But um, two, two, because it's so big and sweeping, um, you know, two episodes over the course of the very compacted shooting schedule is, is um, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, each, each episode shoots for about 16 days each. So, you know, you've got 32 shooting days spread over four months, which is the unique thing about it because you, a lot of your prep is taking place sort of between episodes while other episodes are shooting because all 10 episodes are, are shot at the same time in order to compress the schedule and get the most out of the location so that, for instance, you know, in a typical episodic schedule, um, there's only one director shooting at a time. So if you want to go, if, if each episode has a scene in a particular exotic location, it means you've got to go back there 10, 10 times. In this case, you just go there once. Everybody, the crew goes there once, and each of the directors and DPs cycle in and out. It's a very uh, ingenious and efficient way to shoot. How do you keep the look of the show consistent from episode to episode? Um, keeping the, the look consistent is, you know, obviously it's, it's paramount so that the show feels, um, very cohesive. Um, one of the great things that they did was the post-production people gave each DP a retina iPad with flipbooks, which were basically, um, frame grabs from every location, from every episode, from every scene that had been done up to that point. So, you know, if we, if we, we individually were going into a location for the first time, um, say, you know, say a uh, Rob's campaign tent. Um, we could go back and see what maybe three or four different DPs, how they had treated that in the past in a night scene and so forth. So that, you know, whatever we were doing wasn't radically uh, departing from, you know, the feel and look that had been established. 
And at the same time, you know, depending on the the, the exigencies of, of a, how a director, a particular director, uh, like to work, you know, there, there's always lots of leeway in terms of um, how we approached it. But I think it, it, it meant for made for a very consistent way of um, maintaining the look of the show and and keeping it in the world that we're used to being in. The other thing those iPads were used for, they have a very good system called the PIC system, which um, dailies would go up on. So each DP, for instance, could look, could be right up to date and look at, just go online uh, wherever we were, in, in whether we were in Ireland or Croatia or wherever, and um, see, for instance, what the DP um, had, what, what the other DP had done in the same location yesterday, because maybe chances are that was the episode before and we had to pick up where they left off. And it, it's a really smart, efficient way to do it. How would you describe the look of the show? Uh, well, obviously, the, the look is, is very, very naturalistic. Um, you're, you're living in a world where there um, is nothing but um, daylight or candle and torchlight. So it's all very much inspired from that. And uh, I think, you know, I think, I think the DPs that have approached the show in the past, and, you know, particularly in season one and two, um, really set the bar incredibly high in terms of how well um how well lit the show is and 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 um and 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 uh and, and also how how ballsy they've been in terms of you know how little light they've used and and that was certainly in my mind for instance i'm I'm just looking at the what what's known as the salt and bread scene um where rob stark shows up in the fray castle um looking for uh to make peace and smooth the water because his entire existence depends on things being cool with, with, uh, Walter Frey. And, um, this fellow who plays Walter Frey just, you know, it's incredible because you saw him once in season one and he's, um, he's such an extraordinary character that he's loomed quite large in the background, even though I don't think you even saw him in season two. And now here we are back in the twins, um, and um, Rob's basically um, cap in hand, trying to uh, make peace with everybody. And last time we were in there, um, I thought it was beautifully lit. I forget the DP that, that handled it with the scene with Catlin and, and Walter Frey. But you just really got a sense that this guy um, he was one cheap, mean, old Scrooge sort of character and um, only interested in anything in his own interest. And um, it was pretty dismal and gray, and and I, I really wanted you to have a sense here that things could go either way for Rob Stark, and that and that you know things aren't aren't uh, uh, the, the happy outcome everybody wants to see here isn't necessarily guaranteed at this point. It's a pretty tense scene, um, so we just you know it was daytime. It was uh, supposedly afternoon. He's arrived at the castle, so we just played some. Uh, we had we had four 20k's outside the windows and put a bit of atmosphere in there, and uh, and that was it. And a little bit of fill light. Um, we make a lot of use of a of a light called a, a dado. It's made by dado. It's called an octodome. Um, it can work either tungsten or daylight. In this case, we were tungsten and then cooled everything down a little bit. Um, and you know, in this case. You know, minimal minimal use of candles, um, and uh, we wanted to keep the the it it feeling like things 
kind of go either way at this point. Do you feel that shooting digitally allows you the flexibility in being able to match the work of the other cinematographers while at the same time maintaining that natural look? I think, well, shooting, I think shooting digitally because you've got the high def monitor there and you're looking at a high def monitor on your iPad of, of, you know, what's been done before, certainly, um, it does make it easier. I think if we were shooting film and you had dailies on your iPad and you were just, you know, using your imagination as a good cinematographer used to have to do when you're shooting film, you know, we still would be able to absolutely nail it. Um, but it's a little easier to, uh, to know that you're definitely in the ballpark. But, you know, again, I don't think any of us followed what had gone before us too slavishly because in a lot of cases, these, these locations sort of, I think a good cinematographer walks into a location or a set and lets the set speak to you in terms of how it needs to be look lit. And, you know, the secret is to not try and impose a look on it that's counter to what's there, because my experience is when you do that, you fail generally. Being able to use candle sources and softer light, and, and this is one thing I've noticed in this show particularly, uh, uh, is a lot of low light levels. In what ways did shooting digitally allow you to do that? Well, the beauty, you know, we're using the Alexa camera on here, which is, is the, really the only digital camera I've used, and I've used all of them now that I really like. And um, it's got the most film-like feel to it. It's portable, and it's obviously very sensitive. And the general rule at the point that I came in on this was that everybody almost all the dps almost always just kept it at its nominal uh recommended setting of 800 iso which is you know that's it's it's that's very fast and, and you know if you still got lots of a full complement of big movie lights you've got tons of light there and and um but that scene that we that we just watched with uh you know in the twins with with walter trotting all his daughters out um that um you know, there, there, there was actually quite a bit of light in there. And this is the other thing. I like to work at about a four-stop, um, especially in scenes like this where um, you've got, in this case, I think we had three cameras running because we, we only had a day to get that scene, and obviously there's a lot of bits to get, and um, Mr. Nutter likes lots and lots of coverage. And if one of those cameras is searching around and grabbing stuff, I just, I just don't see any point in shooting wide open um, and then finding yourself needing to do extra takes with for focus and that sort of thing. Um, I find that with that camera, four stop is a good uh, working stop. And again, that it, you know, at 800, that's fairly easy to achieve. And later on, when we got into the big banquet scene where we're only lit with almost exclusively lit with candles and torchlight, I was still I, I pushed the camera the ISO quite a bit. We'll get into that, but. Um, to maintain that four stop because there was a lot of grabbing action shots and that sort of thing without rehearsal necessarily. Was there ever the concern about shooting a period or fantasy piece like Game of Thrones with a digital camera, let's say because of the camera's possibly more digital look? Um, 
I know that when you're going for a period look, it seems that a lot of cinematographers would generally prefer something more natural, uh, more textural looking uh, for a more period image over one that's uh, clean and sharp. Um, I think those cam- the thing about those cameras is that they're so good and they've got such a wonderful dynamic range that, you know, knowing that you've got that, um, the best way to treat it is to just light it in such a way that it will give you the feel and look that you want. And, um, um, I, you know, I, I didn't feel, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel that camera particularly if it's, if it's, if it's, if the subject is properly lit, um, it necessarily gives you that much of a digital look. Now, having said that, I do like to use filters. I know a lot of the DPs were using classic softs or black promis at various points. My new favorite filter is the the Schneider Hollywood Black Magic filter, which is actually a combination of the two of those. And one of the reasons I liked it was that HBO's got a real thing about not liking flares and that sort of thing. And because the camera's so fast, you've often got a lot of neutral density filters in front. And, you know, by the time you then add a diffusion filter to it, every, every piece of glass you put in front is going to give, you know, it's, it's, it's a little more chance for, you know, a bunch of light to start bouncing around in front of the lens and giving you some issues. So the less pieces of glass I've got in front of there, the better, which is why I like this, this Hollywood Black Magic, which combines a couple of them. And what it does is it, it just takes a little bit of the sharpness off. Um, you know, and, and, and it's not like it's, that's nothing new. I mean, I would have probably used this filter if I was shooting film as well. Um, and, but I had, I had just like a very light one on almost all the time. Very few scenes don't have a little bit of something in front of them. We're coming up on the scene where Arya Stark and the Hound uh, meet the hog farmer. They're on a dirt road at the edge of a forest. This scene, you know, I like, I, we, 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 one of the beauties of the show, you know, for episodic compared to, um, you know, most episodic shows is that we did get to go and visit this location a couple of times before we got there. So we were very well prepped. It was, in terms of prep, it's much more like a feature because the DP gets all the prep that the director gets. And, on most episodic, you just don't. In fact, you know, on the series I'm shooting now, half the time I'm walking into a set and I've never seen it before other than in some still photos. In this case, we chose it very carefully, and I liked it because it looked like, it looked like, um, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a, you know, a classic uh, painting. Um, and we could, you know, compose it appropriately and, we're able to do so because of that prep time and, and forethought. There are so many different kinds of landscapes in this show. In the previous scene, we were up in the north where it's snowing all the time. Uh, where are these locations and what was the approach for creating these different landscapes? Uh, well, really, it's, it's, a lot of it has to do with the art direction. This scene with Arya and the Hound and the Pork Farmer um, is shot was shot probably about, I don't know, an hour outside of Belfast in Northern Ireland, which is where a bulk of the shooting is done, um, including some of the snow scenes and so forth. And again, you know, really, um, the, the different fields and looks are accomplished not only with the production design, but also with the, um, with the look that we apply 
um, on set with our uh, with our on set dits, um, and there there are two dits, one with each unit, and they've got fairly standard ones that we all use. For instance, they'll plug in a, a nice you know a cold north of the wall or or castle black look, and and it gets you immediately in the ballpark. Um, starts to reduce the amount of verdant green and and that sort of thing. Are there any visual effects involved, like digital backlots and things like that? Uh, you know, there there you know the show has a fairly handsome visual effects budget, but you know, in terms of what they accomplish, considering how much 3D animation they have to do when they're dealing with the dragons and 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 stuff, um, it's really not that much. So they're 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 pretty careful how they use it, and much of the time it's really just for set extensions and and so forth. And you know, I think they do a really good job. And you know, occasionally cleaning up. Um, a background or something. For instance, that scene we just saw with Arya and the Hound and the Pork Farmer, if you look carefully on one of the reverses, in the distance you can see some little white houses and, you know, they'll they'll paint that out, but it's it's so minimal um, as to be, you know, uh, you know, almost invisible. The scene, you know, one of one of the things, the you know, the, you know, every DP's nightmare is is when you've got a scene that takes a day or two or three to shoot, and it takes place over the course of you know ten minutes, and um, you know, dealing with dealing with weather issues, and um, you know, my favorite thing is to just have flat overcast sky all the time because if you do, you can make sun out of it, you can make a rainy day out of it, you can do anything you want with it. Um, but of course, when it's when the sun's in and out, in and out all day long, as it is you know, incredibly rapidly changing in Northern Ireland. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a tough order. Right now we're at the attack on the farmstead. Uh, Jon Snow, uh, is with the wildlings. Uh, how long did it take to shoot a scene like this? That was that was one. Day. This is yeah. This is uh, this is one day's work, and it was a good solid day's work. Um, it's supposed to be late in the afternoon, um, almost after the sun's gone down in a perfect world, um, you know. And and we accomplished that with with color correction and and just being very careful about where we place everybody and and shoot them. And and again, this is this is the other hallmark of this show, as opposed to certainly any other TV project I've worked on it is paramount to get it right. So everybody, everybody does their damnedest to shoot at the exact right time of day, for instance, you know, so that it's at least backlit, um, so on and so forth. Um, and again, that's something that you, that you can only plan if you've had plenty of prep time. You mentioned before that the scene where Rob Stark eats the bread and salt with Walder Frey was shot with multiple cameras. Do you often find it necessary to cover a scene with multiple cameras in order to make the day? Um, certainly, the way David Nutter likes to work, who is the director I worked with, who you know is, is you know the incomparable TV director. Um, he likes lots of coverage, and I knew going in that you know virtually. I don't think the B camera was ever not working on any of the scenes that we did very, very seldom, unless we had a very specific green screen shot to do, um, you know, where you're limited to angles and so forth.
You make mention of the other directors and also working with the same director for each show. Uh, how different are the styles of each director or are you only allowed to exercise a single visual style within the confines of uh, what's already been established with the show and also what the showrunners mandate? Um, I think Dave Benahoff and Dan Weiss, the showrunners, are very careful about who they bring in. You know, they're, they're, they really do their homework, and I think they only bring directors in who they feel like are going to um, be true to the show or sensitive to the way that the show is shot. And, um, you know, and then, and then once they do, uh, they're given an enormous amount of freedom. It's, it's, it's really amazing, actually. They're incredibly supportive, and um, certainly in, in our case, um, uh, you know, there, there was almost, there were, there were no restrictions put in, you know, you don't, you know, we don't like it, this being done that way or this, that, or the other way. But, you know, that, that could have been partly out of the fact that David Nutter did two of the better episodes last season and, you know, the trust level is very, very high. We're back at the old windmill again with Bran Stark and the other children, and it's dark enough that it looks like nighttime. This is actually this is actually day, but there's a, a storm has rolled in. Um, it's late afternoon uh, or early evening, and there's a rainstorm has come in. We we shot this in the studio, um, and in very very tight quarters, and it needs to cut with. A, the big uh, Jon Snow, Egret, and Wilding uh, fight outside. Were you allowed to be specific with the weather conditions? In in this case, in in the case of the the scene at the old abandoned windmill, um, that was scripted, and I think you know it was a smart move on on the writer's part because you know we've had lots of you know the show has lots of sword fights, it has lots of. Um, similar sort of actions, you know, sprinkled throughout the, the, the season. And by putting it in the pouring rain, just gave it a really desperate, it, it, it just made it that more, much more desperate and, 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 and grim. And also a lot, it gives you so much more atmosphere. It just, it's, it's really great to work with. Now, having said that, um, I was shooting in Belfast, which I've lived in Vancouver much of my life, which is a very rainy place, but I've never seen rain like I've seen in Belfast. And I was really counting on having real rain there that day in addition to our rain towers. Um, actually, we had two two days to shoot in that location, and it was sunny almost the entire time. And the way that it staged out, the sun was at our back, so it was front lit by sun. So, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, a cinematographer um you know, up against the wall, that's the kind of situation that, that we all dread and, and, you know, it makes your life very difficult. Shooting a scene in a, in a beautifully designed set, no matter how big it is, um, is, is really child's play compared to shooting an action scene that takes you two days to do and it's sunlit the whole time and it's supposed to be, you know, 7 o'clock in the evening after the sun's gone down and pouring rain. And, um, I think we, I think we pulled it off pretty well. It was, uh, it was a struggle, but, um, you know, if you watch this, uh, if you watch this scene, there's only a couple of points at which I think, you know, an astute eye would see, Oh, it's, uh, it's sunny there. And, you know, nothing throws you out of the story faster than if you're, if it's supposedly in a thunderstorm and you see a, you know, bright ray of sun coming through somewhere. Right. I think you can see a bit of backlight on the characters in certain shots. 
just just got a little contrasty at one point. I mean, I think we controlled it really well. Um, and in fact, there's a shot at the at the towards the end of the scene when Jon Snow hops on his horse. Um, we just well, there was just no way we could con- we could get our, uh, our 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 silk up high enough to get it off of him at that point in the day. And um, of course, when you front light rain you get rainbows <laughs> and uh and there's a, a nice happy rainbow appears just as he's hopping on his horse so what we did in color correction was we just pulled we pulled all the color out so there's a little bit of a little bit of uh glow there but that's the beauty of of today's color correction software you can go into specific colors in this case the the main colors of the rainbow and um and eliminate them so that it doesn't show up as much well it it's a testament to the writing and to the direction of the show because the scene is so intense and you're so drawn in by the action that until we actually started talking about it, I mean, I'm only just now realizing the marginal inconsistency in the light uh, from shot to shot. Uh, but what you and the DIT and the director have done, uh, the seams are are hidden in, in the drama and the action. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, once you're really in the story, you can you can get away with a fair bit. You know, I mean, if 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 in the background there were some brightly sunlit, warm sunlit trees or something, that that's going to start to pop, even if even if people only notice it on a subconscious level. But I think we got through the. I mean, I was hugely relieved when we when we got this in the can. And the other thing that helps you too is if you can if you can find a way to drift some smoke through and 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 stuff. I mean, um, smoke can hide a lot of a lot of uh, um, you know little little problems. Uh, we tried to get a bit in there. Was there a second unit? Um, there's not really a second unit. There, well, there was in this this in season three. They brought in a third, what they called a third unit, um, for about 14 days. And and actually, interestingly, our episodes um, had them in our schedule for about 12 of those days, which was um, it was tough because you know you've got two big units in a fairly remote location in, in Northern Ireland. I mean, you're not really close to a lot of um, uh, equipment services and so forth. All that stuff's back. You know, it's a, it's a ferry ride or a plane, plane trip away in London. And um, David and I, for instance, this scene in the, in the tower with the little boys, um, we did with, with that unit. And it was a little bit on the, it was a little, it was a little stretched. The camera department was terrific, but I think they stretched themselves a little bit too thin there, but that's the only time that they've done that. And certainly when we were out with the two main standing units, which they call dragon and wolf unit, one of which mostly does the studio work. The other one does the location work. They're spectacularly good. I mean, they're really good. They're they're absolutely, they're, they're not phased by any location. I've never seen, you know, anybody, any unit handle rough terrain as well as these guys do. It's really incredible. So Dragon and Wolf are the two main units. Right. And um, one of them, you know, most of them, they're both, both of them are shooting um, for, throughout the main schedule in, in Northern Ireland. And then at one point, uh, the Wolf unit went off to Croatia and Morocco uh, after that, while the, Wolf, while the Dragon unit continued to shoot uh, material in Belfast. What unit did you work with the most? Well, we bounce between them. Sometimes you'd uh, you'd be with one one day and another one the next day. So, um, literally, um, 
yeah, the director and the AD and I would, would maybe work with one out on location on a Tuesday and then um, have a day down, you know, go back to the studio and spend Wednesday prepping for a big scene on Thursday with a different, completely different unit. That was one thing that was, you know, I mean, as a cinematographer, it's a little bit tough because you... Uh, you know, you get used to your crew, you're, you know, and, and you start a show and you work with them day in and day out for like, you know, even the first, you know, even, even a week for five days straight and you've got a pretty good shorthand and, and things click along really nicely. I did find it quite difficult going into this um, world where you worked with a crew that you'd never worked with before, certainly initially for maybe half a day. And then you don't do anything for two or three days. You just prep and then, you work with an entirely different crew for a couple of days, and then you go back to that one you were with before, and then so on and so forth. It did. It it, it really. I it, it was a bit uncomfortable. It found. I, I found it. It took me about a month out of the four months that I was there to really find my feet and uh, and start to you know have that shorthand that any DP likes to have with their crew. And certainly by the end, by the time we got to the red wedding scene um, with the. Uh, with the Dragon Unit, um, things were like really solid, and and that was an incredibly good experience for me. I really enjoyed it, and obviously, it uh, you know it turned out very very well. And those units don't change; they're they're all the same crew. They're complete units. I mean, I mean they they're everybody you need. They're A and B, and sometimes C camera. They're dits. They're gaffers. They're grips. They're the whole hair, you know entire entire unit unto themselves. They're like two entirely separate companies. And the other cinematographers work with them as well. So we're all sharing crews and sharing notes. And one of, one of the interesting things was one of the great things about it, which I really enjoyed, was you know prior to shooting, um, I found myself in in a room that they set aside for the DPs to prep in, with with five little desks jammed in and five DPs all sitting there, you know, dealing with our own problems. But also there was a lot of cross pollination about you know about strengths and weaknesses of the different crews and crew members and locations and, and um, the best way to accomplish this, that, or the other thing. And, and um, I found that really great. Of course, once it started shooting, we never, we almost never saw each other again. Now we're in Walder Frey's wedding hall and it looks like the festivities are uh, just about to begin. So I wanted to set this in at, at sort of dusk, so it's not quite nighttime. Something I, I I really like to do is to try and build as much, you know, visible time passage into the scenes as I can. Um, I just think it 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 adds to the sense of reality and and moving forward. And you know, if you, in the wide shots in the wedding scene here, you can see there's still a bit of light in the sky outside those windows. Um, it's something you don't typically get to do, certainly in episodic, because, and even in features sometimes, because they'll change the cutting sequence. And, of course, as a DP, you then end up looking like you don't know what you're doing because in one scene it's bright, and then the next one it's dark, and then it's bright again and so forth. Um, we were pretty well locked in here at this point, and we knew that, you know, I had a pretty good sense that I could get away with, with playing this for, you know, evening, but not quite night yet. And I also wanted that that little bit of blue out there to contrast nicely with the candles in this scene because now what I wanted to feel was that 
maybe things were going to turn out okay. And Walter Frey has just presented um, what 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 one person called the uh, the Marilyn Munster of the Frey clan because all the rest of his daughters are so unattractive. And and here's this gorgeous girl and Ed, that's presented to Ed Muir to marry. And we've we, we've we want to start to have a sense that maybe things are going to turn out okay for Rob and the Stark clan and things are going to be all right, and that some of the tension between Walder and Rob is going to dissipate. And um, so I had, even though Walder's a cheapskate, we turned on, you know, as many uh, what at the time are considered to be, you know, very expensive candles to warm it up a bit. We haven't, uh, at the same time, it's it's still got the sort of the gloom that you would expect in in Game of Thrones and certainly in Walder Frey's castle. And the the thing about Game of Thrones is that, you know, even... Even day castle interiors and stuff are, are dark at the best of times. It's a dark show, and bad things happen, and there's dark corners where bad things are lurking. And I wanted to, you know, a sense here that that could still be the case, but that wouldn't be the case by the time we got to the banquet that follows. And, um, you know, it, it needed to have enough contrast in it and naturalism that, that nobody... You, would uh, would get suspicious that you know that they were being played, so to speak, by the filmmakers. And we're back in the windmill with Bran Stark. It's it's nighttime. I love I love this scene in the windmill. The scene with these two little boys was it, it was absolutely heartbreaking. It, it it was heartbreaking when we shot it, they're, they're, and 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 when I watched it when it was done, um, they're they're just so good. And, you know, again, we tried to have a sense there's the, the ceiling um, in the set was kind of broken up. So there's like a little bit of skylight making its way in, but mostly they're all just lit by this one sole candle. And, and I think it worked really nicely. This is such a painterly moment, uh, especially in the wide shots. I wonder, did you have any specific painters or specific works in mind as reference uh, for, for this or other scenes? Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I mean, it really reminisced, it was, I think, really um, reminiscent of Georges de la Tour, the, the French painter, you know, with the, those incredible paintings of uh, Joseph and, and uh, you know, Mary Magdalene and stuff, and all, always lit with a sole candle. And that's really the feel that I was after here. And, you know, one of the things I love about working with British crew is that because, you know, they, they, they've, they've got these spectacular galleries there, I can, I can reference something like that. I can say to the gaffer, I want this to feel like, um, you know, Georges de la Tour or, or, or you know, this is, this is more like Vermeer in his studio or this is, uh, you know, such and such. And, and the operators and the, and the gaffer immediately know what the reference is they know what you're talking about. They know they know compositionally what you're looking for. They just they just get it because they've all spent a great deal of time in the British, you know, in the National Gallery and soaking this stuff up, which is certainly the first thing I do when I get off the plane in London is 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 you know hit the galleries, the, the Tate Britain, and um, it's 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 it, 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 it's it's a kind of I think very efficient shorthand to have and i wish more operators in north america had that 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 sort of that that's you know a little bit a little more steeped in in fine art how did you like this scene 
well, in this case, um, you know, a sole candle wasn't going to quite throw enough light, so I, I hid a sole source down behind, and um, um, it was like a little soft light, like almost like a little Chinese lantern, just to help the candle out a little bit. But the, the trick with this stuff is to not start adding too much and to be as simple as you possibly can, and at the same time, you know, make sure that you see everything and you've got a little bit of light in people's eyes when it's important. And I think, you know, you can look at, it, it was very, very dark in this in this tower set, but if, you know, everybody, you can always see what you need to see in their faces. And um, I, I don't really agree with the conceit of, 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 you know, saying, well, look at me, I'm so daring, I'm going to not see anything here right now. And, you know, I, I think that's something I kind of grew out of back on when I was shooting the TV series Millennium back in the 90s. Uh, where we where, where in fact we were encouraged to do that by Chris Carter because they you know they're trying to break new ground and establish a new way of shooting television. Um, at the end of the day, you know that you know sometimes that doesn't tell the story as well as seeing the eyes. Especially about the kind of performances that we have on this show. I'm into the, I'm into Danny's tent now, and, and Jorah has just arrived to. Um, to uh, announce that they've taken the city. Um, this was actually the last shot, uh, last scene that we did in, in Morocco. It was done in a studio. Um, I wanted to have a sense that it was just dawn, so I, we hung black across the back of the studio, and then I lit it with a uh, 18K light and then put a cutter in front of it so that there was a dark shadow on the bottom to give me a sense of, of a horizon line. Because I, I, I hate it when it's just all black, and you know when you're in the studio and just don't do anything with it. So by lighting the black with the blue 18K, it kind of gave you a, a blue sense of, of, you know, you know they've finished this battle just before dawn. I think it works quite nicely. And again, that's a little subtle thing that you don't notice. Now, I'm, 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 we're into the establishing shot of the uh, wedding banquet. And this is where I really wanted, I really didn't want anybody to think that anything bad was going to happen here because the idea was that um, we wanted the viewers to be pretty sure, positive in fact, that they were going to get the happy ending that they wanted and that Walter, everything was going to turn out great and that Walter was going to throw in with the Starks and that they'd be able to beat the Lannisters. And to do that, I had, I, I you know, I, 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 I joked about it being like Disney Camelot bright, which which by Game of Thrones standards it it almost is in there. There's if you, if you look on the wide shots, there's no dark corners. There's texture everywhere, and um, the fact that it was such a spectacularly well art directed set, um, it sort of would have been a shame not to have felt it as well. Um, so what what we had here was was quite a bit more light level, probably a little bit more fill light than you'd be than than maybe I would have done in a typical Game of Thrones scene. And um what I had them do I had the art department, I wanted to uh work with candlelight as much as I possibly could. So I had the the art department load in probably three times as many candles and torches as they would have preferred. Um but they were very good about it. They got all this stuff, they got it all in there. I said, well, isn't that, isn't that going to be too bright and high key and, and pretty considering what, what's, what's to come? I said, exactly. That's exactly what we want because we want it to feel as festive as, you know, certainly everybody is playing it and to not show our hand because when I wanted 
you know, when, when, when the rug gets pulled out, I wanted the viewer to go down that much harder. And, um, obviously this isn't entirely, you know, on, you know, visual. I mean, it, it's, it's reflected in all the performances and everything else. Um, the trick was I didn't want it to be all high key when all the nasty stuff happened. So what we, what we did here was I, I talked to David Nutter and I talked him into having all the extras grab most of the candelabras or candlesticks and torches. So when they lead the bride and groom out to take them to their wedding chamber, all the revelers leave with the light and they took the light out of the room. And it was a nice organic way to take it from, from, again, by Game of Thrones standards, high key and festive and very pretty to much spookier. And, um, you know, I think, you know, this, this big wide spot where Rob comes up and addresses his Walter, you get a sense that this is uh this is a big happy wedding. This is a, this is a, this is an event we'd all like to be at. And at the same time, my other, my, my other concern was I knew again, we'd be shooting with three cameras. One of the cameras was probably going to be on a long lens picking off, uh, extra bits of coverage wherever it was and I needed um you know I I I wanted to give them a, a you know a, a, at least a two eight or a four stop and at the same time I wanted to light it 90% with candle and torch light so I cranked the sensitivity rating on the Alexa camera up to 1680 which is very very fast and and I don't, I don't know that anybody particularly done it on the series up until this point um and one of the things that that does is that when you it when you increase the uh sensitivity on the camera when you turn it up oddly it holds more detail in the highlights and i didn't want all those candles and torches to just be white burned out blobs which they typically would be on digital when you're when you're exposing at those kind of levels so it 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 achieved two things for me. It let me shoot at a four stop. It let me light with candlelight and it kept detail in those candles and torches where, you know, I mean, they're not, they're not rich and red, but they certainly aren't, uh, they aren't completely peaking on, on the, uh, on the video scale. But then you're going to go back to a darker look. Once the violence begins, did you keep the ISO consistent throughout the whole scene? I, I kept the ISO the same through the whole scene. Cause, cause, you don't from from you know within a scene you don't want to be changing it because it does change the contrast and the look and the feel of it quite a bit. So you want it to be very consistent, and it, and it was like I said it was it was really all about removing the light from the room, leaving everything on the camera the same, but removing the light from the room. And and um, the way the scene played out, you know, if if, if you'd seen it. Um, um, just in the wide shot, for instance, you'd have seen a very distinct. Um, dimming of the light in there, but it was really or primarily organic in terms of removing the lights from the room. By the time Black Walder, um, the, the Walder Frey's son, closes those doors, um, it's, it's really down to a much lower level at this point. Everything on the camera stays the same. We just removed a lot of the light from the room, and you can see on Michelle Fairley's face as Cat Stark, you know, there's a lot more, there's more contrast, there's more, uh, there's more modeling. And for the rest of the scene, it was really just, this is the extraordinary thing about, about these cameras at those levels is I found that, you know, somebody's face was too bright if they, if, 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 if you'd have a candelabra with maybe six candles on it or candlestick. And, um, 
if somebody's face was too bright, you'd put two of the candles out, and now it was perfect. It's really extraordinary. Did boosting the ISO on the top end uh, negatively affect your shadows and midtones? Um, I, I, I made sure that we, th this is where using atmosphere in the room, using a bit of smoke in the room um, helps. And I think all the DPs on the show use it a lot. And the, and, the, and the technicians there are very good at putting it in. In this case, you know, all those candles and stuff, because they're double and triple wick, throw a lot of smoke off. And, and sometimes it even built up in the room to the point where we had to air it out. And by putting the atmosphere in there, it kept the blacks from getting too blocked up or noisy. And that, together with the Hollywood Black Magic filter that I used, um, it spread that candle light around. And I think what you end up with is an extremely natural, soft feeling. And this is the other thing. You know, I, I felt like shooting... I think probably the world's first massacre strictly almost exclusively with candlelight was, was, was an interesting way to go because the candlelight is so pretty that um, it makes a great counterpoint to the, to the horror of what's going on and makes it that much more of a surprise when, when, you know, the mayhem breaks out and, and, and arrows start flying and Rob's wife gets brutally stabbed in the stomach. Now, did the betrayal uh, in the story come as a surprise to the cast and crew? Were there elements of the scene that were kept secret until the day you shot it? I think certainly everybody involved in the in the um, in the episode knew what was coming. Um, everybody was required to keep very mum about it. Obviously, um, Dave and Dan. You know, I think you know they they they. David Nutter told me that they they had told him that that they'd been looking forward to doing this episode from the time they signed on. It was it was just you know a really great opportunity to do something you know really shocking and extraordinary. It wasn't shocking if you'd read the books. People who had read the books obviously knew this was coming. In fact, those are the people who videotape their friends watching the show who hadn't read the books. It's an incredibly violent scene. I mean, people are having their throats cut and a pregnant woman is stabbed multiple times in the stomach and there's blood everywhere. It's just brutal. Uh, but because you're going for such a realistic tone, does it make that kind of thing hard to shoot? I can imagine it would be a lot different, let's say, if you were trying to be more stylized. Well, I think as filmmakers, we've, we've you know, most of us have dealt with, 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 brutal and grisly scenes on film. Certainly I did, you know, on, 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 um, millennium that dealt with serial killers and that sort of thing. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's always difficult, but at the same time, you're also doing, 
it, it's also extremely technical. And as much as you know, watching this sh- this this scene of the Red Wedding unfold um, was incredibly engaging. I mean, it was the closest thing I've ever come to being in live theater because partly because we shot in order. So the last shot we did was Cat Stark's throat being slit. Um, but having said that, it's you know it's very technical and all along the way and putting the getting the um, getting the blood prosthetics in and and doing all that stuff. Everybody you know the t- t- the technical crew get very wrapped up in 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 that stuff and you have to stay very focused on that and you have to make sure that you get it right. So you know nobody can get too emotional. Uh, however, having said that, um, certainly while we were filming, for instance, Rob Stark's close up cradling his wife. Um, and the director was talking him through it. Um, you know, half the crew were abs- were blood- <laughs> flubbing their eyes out. I mean, it was kind of a mess. And, and and certainly by the end of it, um, everybody was very affected by it. It was it was a very moving experience, much much more so than any that I've ever been party to in in film or television. And you know, part of that too was they were saying goodbye to some extremely beloved characters, but also beloved actors and people that everybody had worked with for a long time. So it was, you know, it, it was an extremely emotional um, uh, place to be in that room when we, when we were doing it. I think I think that whole sequence took about I think we had four days for that scene. Um, and again, with three cameras and, and, uh, a lot of candles. <laughs> How do you feel about this episode now that it's all come together? You know, I, 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 I'd lived with it for a year by the time I saw it, from the time I got the, got the script to the time that I finally saw the final episode on the air it had been a year and it was no less moving then than it was before and and um you know it's just i I, but the reaction um on the internet and amongst the fans um was (laughs) mind-boggling but and and also incredibly gratifying because obviously we did hide our intentions we did hide the fact of that, that that this was coming and um it 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 really surprised everybody and that's what we tried to do with the performances that's what we tried to do with the lighting and how we use the camera and and the subtleties of progressing the lighting to get you to that point until finally we're in this 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 very dark gloomy room i mean if 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 on a properly calibrated monitor you can't really see the back of the room when you're for instance over walter frey's shoulder which is about 40 48 and a half minutes in um it's um, it, it it has gone from a very festive place to a very grim place, and I'm really pleased with the way the scene turned out because we didn't there was no trickery and it was entirely organic by simply having people pick up the light sources and walk out with them. Rob, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. That was cinematographer Rob McLaughlin talking about his work on the HBO TV series Game of Thrones. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by 
the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.